Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Philip Thompson. I'm a voice and speech coach and voice and speech teacher at the University of California, Irvine. I'm joined here today by Eric Armstrong. Hi there. Hi, Phil. Uh, yes, I too am a vocal coach and teacher based in Toronto, Canada, and I work in film, theater, and television, and anything else I can get jobs doing, and I teach too. <laughs> Excellent. So this is episode 11 of Glossonomia. Uh, I think that you can tell because we're very relaxed about it. And uh, I, I think that we're getting a rhythm of things here on the show. Uh, as you know, if you've listened to any of these before, the rhythm is that we talk about a sound. We talk about how it's made. Uh, we talk about where it occurs. Uh, we talk about the history of it. Uh, we talk about its phonetic notation. We talk about all sorts of things about that sound. And today's sound, as we're alternating between consonants and vowels, today's vowel sound is the sound that occurs in goose. Uh, that's the label that we'll be using a lot because that's how J.C. Wells uh, assigns it a lexical category. He calls it the goose vowel. So uh, I think that we might want to start here by making a little bit of an apology or a warning about our sound quality. Uh, today I'm uh, in New York City, not in a fancy studio, but in a friend's apartment holed up in his back bedroom with my portable equipment. So I'm hoping that it will uh, produce the right effect and that you won't be able to notice it. And, but, and, uh, and I too have uh, portable equipment I'm recording from home and uh, doing my best to make it sound okay. So uh, my back room is very close to the outside, and sometimes you hear birds and cats and things. So if it doesn't that sound as good today, we apologize. I think it'll be charming to have cats in the background. So uh, I thought it might be best to talk first a little bit about the formation of the ooh sound. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a vowel, and we've uh, talked ad nauseum, I think, about the difference between vowels and consonants. Uh, we also talked, when we talked about the fleece vowel, about the vowel chart and where things are on that chart. So, Eric, why don't you give us the official name, uh, according to the IPA, of the goose vowel? So, uh, it is a uh, rounded, close-back vowel. Um, so, the, the three components... Uh, uh, um, of a of a vowel are whether it's got lip rounding or not, mm -hmm. uh, whether and where it is in terms of height and front and backness. So uh, this is as far back as you can go, go, and as most most closed as you can get. So yeah. uh, so close back and rounded. Can we peek into that close for a moment? Because mm. we talk about height. Uh, we talk about how closed it is, but the word that we use is close. Uh, yeah, we talk about close because generally the measure of it is how close your tongue is to the roof of your mouth. So uh, it's close, not closed. Um, and that, that 
space, essentially, between the tongue and the roof of the mouth is ultimately the, the measure of the vocal tract. And when we're talking about that, um, of course, that height can be created by the movement of the tongue or the movement of the tongue carried up by the jaw um, or the combination of the tongue and jaw moving together. So it, it, uh, it really is uh, a closeness of that or a narrowness of the vocal space and the, the, the action of, it's not just one articulator, there's several articulators involved. So that axis, let's say, of our, of our 3D or 2D space is up and down, and this is the most up. On the vowel chart, we'll see it as the most up, the highest towards the top of the chart. Uh, and it could be realized, that is to say, people could say it a little higher, a little lower. That happens a lot. The other direction is how far front or back it is, and as you say, this one's the furthest back, However, we could pronounce it further and further forward. I think we talked about that a little bit when we talked about fleece and the centralized fleece. There could be a centralized ooh that's more ooh, 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 which we'll get back to, I'm sure. Uh, then the third axis, the third component, if we want to make this 3D, is the roundness. I don't know if I talked about the physical action of lip rounding in any previous episode. Once. You've mentioned it once. Um, and the, the action of the inner and outer lip muscles. Can you Great. clarify again? Yeah, this is... I just love talking about this because the, the article that really laid this out the first time I had really ever seen it explained was, was in 2005, which I, I love the fact that scientists are still figuring out and describing some of this stuff. Uh, it's not old news. We're still on the, we're still pioneers, I think. So, your orbicularis oris muscle—that is to say, the muscle that circles your mouth—it's a, a sphincter muscle. I'm sorry, it's a circular muscle, and uh, it has outer fibers and inner fibers, and the they're somewhat independent. So you could squish the outer fibers, and that would roll everything forward. The fluid of your lips gets pushed forward. So the essential action of lip protrusion is squishing the outside, leaving the inside soft. We sometimes call that rounding because it makes our lips a little bit more round because the corners of our lips are moving forward. They're being protruded. Then we also do a second action, which is closing that aperture even further by uh, constricting the inner fibers as well. So at the most rounded, I'm doing both actions to a certain degree. I'm constricting the outer fibers so that my lip corners go forward, and then I'm also pulling in uh, Dudley Knight and I call this pursing. I'm sure we didn't invent that word, but uh, to distinguish it from protrusion. Uh, so a fully rounded lip shape, which I'm going to make an ooh through, ooh, is both sets of muscles contracting to get a tiny little hole pushed out. Right. And, and the, you can make the tiny little hole without it pushing out. Yes, indeed. Uh, one of the things that we've talked before about how vowels are essentially uh, 
acoustic results of the shape of the vocal tract. And one of the main ways that you can adjust the vocal tract in terms of its resonance pattern is by lengthening it or shortening it. And so lip corners forward equals lengthened tube. It's a longer tube. And so, ooh, you can see it on your, on your face. Uh, in fact, uh, if, if you see somebody, if you lip read them, you're pretty sure about what they're doing, even though there is a tongue component. We rarely do that lip corner forward in English unless we're doing an ooh sound. The, the only other option is on a shh sound. Yeah, yeah. Or perhaps on a r sound, we might be putting doing a lot of labialization. Right. Since but that's not what we're talking about this episode. No. <laughs> but lip rounding, so, it's yeah. an important thing. And uh, the confusing thing is that in various different versions of English... Uh, some people use more or less lip rounding depending on uh, context, that uh, certain co consonants, you might be headed towards a certain sound, so you're going to use less lip rounding when you're heading towards that sound, or mm -hmm. your accent has very little lip rounding. And, and I have met people who, even within their own social group, where the accent generally calls for a, a fair modicum of lip rounding, they just, they just don't move their lips, um, that they are idiosyncratic in that way, in that they, that they are non-lip people. <laughs> that was the title of my band in the 70s, the non-lip people. Uh, so uh, lip rounding actually is also, I want to mention, because you've, you've said that, is, can be part of the vocal tract settings, to use John Laver's terms, uh, or to use my terms, it's part of the oral posture. And so some accents have the lips far forward and the lips are tending forward, it's easy to move them forward, they might stay forward, and other accents might not really move forward very much, they might be staying in a more retracted position. Sure. And that's not the only thing that's going on in those accents, but you can really feel something fundamental happen, both in your mouth and your imagination, when you keep your lips forward or keep your lips back. Mm. Uh, working with people who who haven't done much of this kind of lip rounding stuff before, or they come from a background where they speak with a constant smile, so their lips are always spread. I've used techniques like imagine that you're sucking on a straw, or uh, have a, a popsicle or something in your mouth. Uh, if you put your pinky in your mouth and round your lips around it, and draw your finger forward, and that's going to encourage your lips to round forward and getting that feeling and then thinking, okay, now what if I did that with a cocktail straw or a Slurpee straw or one of those really fat straws that they have the, um, what are the drinks with the, the globs of uh, stuff in the bottom? Yes. Bubble the, tea. Um, Bubble tea. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Right? Those really yes, fat straws. I'd like to stop thinking about that tea right now. <laughs> so uh, the, 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 the various widths of those straws give sort of a different kind of sense to the different qualities of rounding that you can use. And that, that's been a helpful tool to introduce the idea of rounding to non-rounders. Um, Michael Barnes introduced this to me, and I'm not sure where he got it from. Basically, f the number of fingers you put in your mouth equals a certain vowel. Mm. And this seems very similar to what Arthur Lessac talks about when he describes the various vowel shapes. He seems to be talking pretty much about lip position. Now, that's a can be a clever way of dealing with it because you're less conscious of the rest of your tongue's action. And so by 
keying into the lip position, you'll automatically do the tongue position. Uh, my preference is to talk about all the physical changes that are going on. Um, and of course, of course, we've worked with actors who don't really move their jaws at all. And so they're ultimately doing almost everything in terms of height with their tongue. Um, yeah. And so ooh is an easy one because their mouths, if their jaws are essentially shut all the time, ooh is very close to the roof of their mouth. That's easy. It's when they get into doing something like awe where they really have to press their tongue down into the bottom of their mouth to make the room for it. And, and probably do a little bit of retraction as well just to get that tongue back there. You know, there are some accents that have a lot of retraction, a lot of jaw closure, and those all sounds are really about the tongue traveling backwards because there isn't any room any further down. All right, let's, uh, we've, we've talked through the physicality of it. One of the things that I like to remind people to do is to make the shape and to inhale through it. So if you say, ooh, you'll feel the cooler outside air move over the tongue. And that's sometimes the point at which some of my students have their epiphany saying, by golly, my tongue is really high up. I didn't think about it being high up. That we sort of unconsciously associating, uh, associate the lips moving forward with the tongue moving up and back, uh, which is, I think, what Lesak is relying on. And one of the other ways in which, the, the points at which they have a little revelation is when they move that tongue forward into the E position and round the lips around it to get E, that... Uh, that French phoneme, E, uh, represented by a Y in, in the IPA. Uh, there's a wonderful bit in the Bourgeois Gentilhomme uh, where the professor teaches Monsieur Jourdain to, uh, to speak. He sort of explains the vowels to him. And he explains this vowel, which of course is a French vowel, uh, but Monsieur Jourdain is sort of flummoxed, flabbergasted, astounded that he's able to make such sounds. And the, the joke of the scene is that he's making an e, oh, e, oh, and he's making donkey noises. So right. uh, that description, though, th that, that shape for an American speaker of the tongue in the e position and the lips in the oo position can be very, there's a cognitive dissonance at work mm -hmm. because we usually don't arrange things in that way. Being from a country that's officially bilingual, French and English, uh, certainly very easy to introduce the U vowel. Most Canadians have been exposed to U quite a bit. Um, in fact, for me, the cognitive dissonance typically happens when I tell people that in their own English, Ooh is a back vowel, because for most of them, the sensation of the lip rounding forward means hmm. that ooh is a forward vowel. Uh, that's their perception of it, is that w when I say e and then I say ooh, my lips round forward. And so, why isn't ooh a forward vowel? And the fact that that measure of front backness is really about where the highest point of the tongue is... Uh, is is a, a conf confusing one. So I have to get people to, to take lips out of it. And so I do things like have people put their fingers in the corner of their mouths to f keep their lips from moving forward and then try to say e u, and then they can really feel that front-back difference. We're, we're certainly uh, 
more aware of our lips than our tongue position. We can sometimes be completely unaware of what our tongues are doing. Uh, there's the further you move back in the vocal tract, the less you know about what's going on. Generally speaking, I, I had somebody uh, asking me for a clarification. Somebody who had taken a class from me. She was teaching her students in Texas, and they had pretty much the same uh, problem. And in fact, they were they were finding a lot of resistance to discovering the tongue movement because, in fact, their Goose sound was per- so far forward, and their fleece sound was so far back. So fleece and goose were really very close. So they had less transit going on there. And in fact, in that case, it's really mostly about the tongue, mm-hmm. uh, or rather about the lips. That if I'm saying fleece and goose, in with my tongue not moving very much, my lips are doing more of that sound change. And there's certainly plenty of people for whom goose has no lip rounding at all, as we've said before. So if you're comparing those fleece and goose, uh, and you do them in a fairly uh, uh, similar manner, you're not going to feel much of a difference at all. So, yeah, it's interesting to me that one of the things that we're doing when we're teaching these cardinal vowels, that these, we've talked about that before, I won't go into that, uh, we when we're teaching these cardinal positions, we're not only explaining how the machine works to people, but we're also encouraging them to reach into the furthest corner of this chart. Uh, We're stretching them out. Now, we're doing this, when you and I teach, we're doing this without any sense that there's an appropriate place to be, necessarily. We're discovering it first. Uh, But I think that sometimes ideal accents are taught and they're taught with the sense that they are ideal because they achieve these big differences, and they're taught in order to get people to achieve big differences, which seems to be could be a, a valuable goal in terms of intelligibility. Though I, I, I think uh, many people imagine that when they make an ooh sound that they're doing it in a cardinal way, um, and imagine that their English ooh is in the back corner, and the fact of the matter is that an ooh can go really <laughs> far back, and yeah. most of us never do that. Uh, only those of us who speak other languages actually have a sense of, oh, there's, there's actually another whole wing on the back of the house here that I've never actually visited. Um, Could you model that for us? Maybe so, just do the pure vowel? So if I did my own ooh sound like on a word like goo, and then I pulled it back as far as I can go, ooh, it gets really dark. Ooh, back in that corner. Ooh, yeah. ooh. So um, uh, when who I... Are you? Who, who are you? Um, and really, the only case we would hear that today would be some kind of parody of somebody speaking in a hyper, what might have been perceived as a hyper-correct way a long time ago, um, or someone speaking with an accent where that would be appropriate. Excellent. So we've talked about the formation. I think it's pretty clear, and it's good that we've talked about some of the variations, because I think we'll be getting back to those uh, as well. Uh, The next thing to talk about is the the spelling. And... uh, Today, the spelling's going to be very interesting because it's going to have to bring in the history uh, and a little bit of the variation. In 
Uh, let's take the word goose as the first category of spelling, the double oo. And if you look back into uh, earlier books, uh, I mentioned in the last show my orthoepy book, uh, early, let's say, 19th century books about pronunciation and spelling tend to use double O to represent the oo sound. And that's intuitive, because I think a lot of our students, a lot of us, will look at a double O and say, that's pronounced oo. We recognize that as something, an essential way of spelling oo. And there's not going to be much confusion unless we have an o-o sound, a, a, a zoology sort of thing. Uh, so that oo, with the double O spelling, in Old English and Middle English, really, uh, was pronounced with an O sound. So words like goose uh, were pronounced as goose. Sure. Shoot would have been short, or spook, spoke. And spelled that way as well. Uh, I'm trying to think of my Chaucer, Juan that April. Uh, there's a good O in there. Uh, uh, I've got it online here. Oh, uh, goody. Um, when that April is with his showers swot, the drocht of March hath pierced to the rot. And probably that final E would be pronounced so to be shota and rota. Oh, there's no final E on this one. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, and bathed every... I don't know whether this is a translation. Well, for some reason I can't find this here. Maybe and this I is a translation. So, in any case, that was an unnecessary diversion, I think. Uh, the, uh, the old English O, and, and then eventually the double O spelling, was originally pronounced O, and one of the things that happened in the Great Vowel Shift is it shifted up from, uh, let's say, short to shoot. Now, there were some sounds that were in the oo position uh, that shifted out of that spot. And we've talked about chain shifts before. So words like moose, that is the small rodent, and hoos, the place where you live, shifted first to a sort of house, and then to house. Uh, so mouth, mouse, house, those words uh, are were originally in the oo position and left the oo position, except for, notably, some Scottish accents, for example. Uh, and Canadian. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Newton about is, uh, we, we only made it halfway on those words. Uh, yes, and then that's that's interesting. The, uh, I've talked before about the confusion that Americans have with that sound, so I won't go into that now. But uh, out, out, out is kind of fronted as well. It seems to have traveled slightly past the midline rather than all the way down into the lower front corner of au. So. Historically, we don't know really whether the whether mouth left mouth and made room 
for uh, Schott to move up to shoot, but it kind of doesn't matter. So historically, O's and double O's uh, have shifted up into U. The impression I've gotten from the little reading that I've done is that the O sound, the thought sound, bumped into the O sound, which bumped up into the U sound, and then that U sound moved down towards the ow area. So whether it really started all at once or whether the O uh, becoming more close started it off, I'm not sure. But uh, um, that's the way they draw the pictures. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's uh, controversy about whether it's a drag chain shift or a push chain shift, but if we get into that, I think we will have finally realized that we've gone too far. Uh, and we'll, we'll have gone beyond the limits of my knowledge, that's for sure. So, uh, yes, to go back to this uh, uh, great vowel shift, words that were pronounced O moved up to O, so stone becomes stone. Uh, and there were really two candidates for U. First, the O sounds that moved into U, and those are represented by the double O. Uh, there were French words that came in that had an E, which we described before as a front tongue position but lip-rounded. Uh, fuse, I guess, would be a, an example of that. Uh, do you have the list of words in front uh, of you? So a word like tune becoming tune, ultimately, but going through tune. Uh, words like uh, a, uh, probably amuse, amuse, that's a cube, definitely became cube. So when they came into English, ultimately, the U turned into the liquid U uh, with the Y sound uh, to sort of grab that front quality and then sliding into the ooh, you. And there was another uh, category that fit into that, which was words that were spelled E-W or E-U that were already in English, like the word few was something like feuwe, feuwe became feu, uh, so ew, ew, uh, was essentially the stress was on the e and it trailed off into the oo, ew, uh, which was represented in the spelling by the W. And that falling diphthong, that is to say it starts big and falls off, got shifted into a rising diphthong that essentially starts small and gets big. So it went from few to few. Uh, that's something that you could probably, if you played around with it, find the way that happens. Uh, there are lots of little variations, but it's a subtle shift, but it's a fundamental shift in that whether you think about it as an E sound or an oo sound. And we definitely think about few as an oo sound with a special little beginning. Uh, those we call liquid U's. Uh, we could also say that they're oo's that have a yod in front of them. Now, I'm sure we'll have an episode about yods. Uh, but? But... But we do need to talk about it. So, we have in English two sets. We have an oo set and an ew set. 
the U set, some of those trail off and became, become au, uh, but many, spelled with U's, uh, or spelled with double U's, uh, rather double O's, stay in that U area. Another set, variably, they, they have their Y, and then they drop their Y, their Yod, uh, and this is referred to by J.C. Wells as early yod dropping, which is just hilarious to say, I think, early yod dropping. Uh, I like to say it in front of my students just to amuse them. So, so let's clar- clarify. These are words that, when they came into English, had you, and then early on in the development of English, lost the ya and just went to oo. Yes. Uh, so, which words would those be? Well... Uh, they're, they're words that you could say are, are easy to say because of the surrounding consonants. Uh, I, easy, easier to say without the yod. So a word like bliu becomes blue, and riud yes. becomes rude. And you could say that it's because that preceding consonant has a back-of-the-tongue component, r and l. So, yes, ryud, ryud, for me, would involve a back-tongue bunching followed by a front of the tongue, uh, an arch towards the front to get the y, and then back to the u. That's a long journey. And so it's a lot easier just to say rude and keep my tongue in the back there. Interesting. That's an interesting interpretation, because for me... Uh, when I say something like blue, I actually do kind of a wave action with my tongue where the, the front tip of my tongue is up, and then to get the y, uh, the part that was down behind that front tip has to jump up and sort of replace where the tip was. And so that, that uh, crossover is a very complex maneuver and much easier to drop that out and go from blue to blue. Yeah, I think we're describing the same thing in a slightly different way. And, yeah, it's a complicated thing to do, and it really makes... I mean, it would, I think, be very useful if if I wanted to call somebody rude, to call them rude, uh, but uh, it would take a long time. The only, the only instance I can ever think of a place where that's appropriate is if you're playing sort of a pedant who is sort of applying rules of orth- orthoopy to language. So we might get that in Love's Labor's Lost, for instance. Um, but uh, I, I remember uh, once working on a monologue for, from uh, Winter's Tale, uh, and there's that lovely line, uh, and his wife sluiced in his absence. <laughs> and I said sluiced in his absence, just to play around with the idea of what that would feel like. Um, and uh, it made it sound much more sexual in in nature. I, I ultimately decided that it was a very silly choice to make, but it was, I, I had fun doing it. Well, and, and uh, I had a, a similar experience with a, a, a different word, and that is uh, the word suit, uh, which I would never pronounce as suit, uh, but certainly is within the rules of some accents to say... Uh, that front of tongue articulations before this variable u, uh, like suit and lewd, uh, they're certainly very fancy. 
And so I was playing Paris in, in Romeo and Juliet, and I, I've played that role too many times. And in this one, they had me in a very fancy sort of uh, tuxedo. And so it made sense to say, but now, my lord, what say you to my suit? And th everybody knew who I was. Whereas in the other production where I had flowing, diaphanous clothing and a wig, uh, I, I said, but now, my lord, what say you to my suit? And I was a dude <laughs> rather than a dude, I imagine. But interesting so, to, to hear you say suit. Uh, um, I, I hear suit as being different from a suit of clothes or a, a, a suit of cards. Um, that uh, I, probably I made that up in my own imagining. But uh, one. But if you can, so can the audience. Exactly. That uh, if I'm making an appeal in a suit, as one might in a legal situation. Uh, I, I I can imagine the, the the use of that liquid you there, whereas a suit of clothes, I, I hear hear that is different. So again, to talk about what this category is, uh, we're not talking about double O words, which don't have this because they actually came from an O sound. So, uh, loop and boom are not loop and boom ever, and nobody who's an English speaker would really think that they were. However, U or EU spellings uh, like dupe and mute and duke, they're variable in terms of whether or not that yod exists or not, uh, how much yod dropping there is. There are some accents which drop every yod who have completely merged these sets so that they will say music and beautiful and foo. Uh, now, I, do, I haven't actually heard a sample of somebody saying that, but I trust J.C. Wells as he records it in his accents of English. It's, it's in East Anglia, right? And uh, most British speakers are, are used to hearing, uh, I think it's an ad for butter, I believe, where the actor says, beautiful. Uh, yes, if, if I can find it and I can throw it into the podcast, well, I suppose you're editing this one, so I, uh, I won't worry about that. Uh, so I, I'm not going to refer to it at all so that we don't have to worry about inserting it afterwards. Uh, so then we have the question of variable yaw dropping, which is different between RP and American. And so after a bilabial or a labial of any sort, definitely everybody's going to keep that yod. So we'll say few and music and beautiful. That is, if we're not East Anglian butter commercial I, I found it. It's, uh, it's uh, Bernard Matthews Farms Limited, and they're famous for that. Um, uh, Do you have a sample available? Um, let's see. <laughs> hey, roast lamb, my favorite. It looks delicious. And it tastes as good as it looks, my girl. I think your mother's flipped. I think she's beautiful. So that's a pretty limited group of, of folks. And maybe it's achieved legendary status now and very few people actually do it in, in real life. That it's, uh, I think Wells calls it uh, sharply recessive. Uh, that is to say it's receding. Uh, the, 
The big distinction, and this is a distinction for Americans who have who drop more broadly uh, to find a way to discover which sounds might have a yod for them inserted uh, so that they can do their RP and then how to do it deftly enough that it doesn't sound like, as we were talking about before, reud. So uh, generally speaking, we could say that we will always do it after uh, a labial sound of some sort. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a way of remembering this, that people don't go to church and sit in poo. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's terrific. Uh, and, the, and after a hard night of drinking, they don't pook. Right. So the sounds, though, that are in this in-between territory, between the two accents, are, generally speaking, uh, alveolar sounds. Uh, they're lewd, suit, duty, tune. I feel like I'm leaving one out. Uh, 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 no, I don't think so. Lewd, duke, tune, yeah. Um, yeah. Yep, those are so the main ones. Those are words that I would say lewd, suit, tune, duke. Uh, for oh, example... N. N. You're forgetting N. Uh, right, right, new, yes, exactly. Uh, we we absolutely always do it with the labial mu, uh, and so it's easy to tell a student, well, you can say mu, then you can easily say new. Uh, I think sometimes students, when they're hearing liquid use, they're so appalled by them, my American students, that <laughs> they, they refuse to believe that they're possible, they must only be ridiculously overdone. Right. But then if you get them to find them by analogy and say, well, you don't say music, you say music. Right. Then you could easily, yeah, so you could easily say new. And generally speaking, that yod is, can be very light. It doesn't have to be really strongly done. Uh, generally speaking, uh, the, the most recessive of those are the s and the l, so suit and lewd are, they're falling away, and, and the, I would be surprised to hear those in a contemporary RP speaker, frankly. Yes, that suit and, and lewd you can still do, but blue and flute you can never do. So it's interesting that in the cluster it, it is, uh, it's gone far sooner than in, uh, just on its own. Yes, and you could uh, analogize that to other clusters like... Uh, uh, we don't say brewing. Uh, I'm sure we could think of some more. I'm, I'm sure that we'd find them listed somewhere but, in our... But L is a bit different because R on its own, you never do either. So yes. uh, the L clusters are parallel with R on its own. Um, and so uh, L and S a little bit, little bit different than um, R. Uh, I'm trying to think of any... N's preceded by S's. Snoop Dogg, but that's a double O, so that's part of a different category. Uh, no, I can't think of them. Uh, here's one that probably, it probably lives in second syllables more, that is to say the retention of the liquid or the yod after L or S. Consume, or absolutely, in RP, that stays b b more broadly. 
but still in America, certainly in my neck of the woods, consume and absolute. Uh, and, and that does sound archaic now to me. Yes, yes, indeed. So we've, we've talked about Goose, its history. We've talked about this interesting split which allows for Yod dropping. That would mean that the Yod would have to be there in the first place. Uh, the early Yod dropping is the one that gives us uh, pronunciations that, we, that everybody pronounces as ooh, and the later one really am, accounts for the American RP difference. I know what we need to talk about next. Oh, good. And that's Yod Coalescence. Ah, brilliant. Early co- Yod Coalescence and contemporary Yod Coalescence. So early Yod, co- let's start, coalesce is to bring together. So when we have T and D before Yod going into U, uh, on words like Duke or Tune, this can, the Yod can coalesce with the, that alveolar consonant and become ch. So we get chun or juke, for example. That's contemporary uh, instance that you hear in something like a working-class London accent. But the early yod coalescence is in words like education becoming education. And so only hypercorrect speakers are still saying education or issue or issue and to go earlier still the word picture i cannot think of where i would mark that change uh who says or would even think of saying picture uh it's picture right figure uh well there's one that actually is variable because uh figure has happened in rp so that's a yod that's been dropped uh, but it stays in American English. Figure. But the U has disappeared, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Now, we'll save for uh, our episode about foot uh, this distinction between the, we could call them the long U and the short U. Uh, but there is an aspect of this. J.C. Wells has his unstressed lexical set words, letter, comma, and happy. Uh, But more recently, and I'm not sure who did this, another one's been added, and that's into. Mm. And essentially, it's unstressed ooh. Uh, We don't really have that much to say about it, except that some people will retain the ooishness, educate, and other people will uh, relax it completely towards uh. So, to be or not to be, some people will say to be or not to be, but then they're stressing the word, yes? So it's not into, it's goose. Uh, But you don't stress the word in to be, uh, because you're talking about being. So the question then is how much you retain the characteristics, that is the vowel quality, uh, even if you're not retaining the vowel quantity. Mm. So there are some accents in which it is simply to be or not to be. So the ooh is shifting to a schwa. Exactly. Ugh. So the vowel quality has centralized. Some people, though, retain a little bit of lip rounding to be or not to be. 
in all cases, that they're maybe slightly more careful speakers, or it might be a feature of a particular accent. I think it's probably more common in RP, I would think, than in American, the, the American accents that I run into. Now, there's another variation of this, and that is uh, what I might call the elision into. So there are some accents where you say, to go to every season, to everything, there is a season. To everybody, no lip rounding. But a glottal. Ah, to that's... Ev- to everybody. Didn't even hear it, did you? In order to mark that distinction, to break the two vowels apart, we need to do that somehow. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is a skill that... A skill, uh, a feature that some of my students have. All features aren't skills, aren't they? They are. <laughs> there are no bugs, only features. Uh, so some of my students do not know that they're saying to be to everyone. To everyone. They're using a little bit of lip rounding to smooth the shift between vowels. And or break it, to break the shift. So it's yes, yes. to everyone, they're doing to everyone. Almost a little W-like quality. Exactly. You, you remind me, by the way, that there are certainly places in which the, the vowel is completely elided and we have to everything. We have a Shakespearean elision of the T, but we're not going there now. So this is something that I like about my students who don't have it to be able to learn how to do because I feel it's one of the features of uh, marking class, marking uh, educational uh, experience, but it also provides an extra bit of linguistic information uh, so that you hear the word that's underlying it. It's not a virtue if it doesn't actually communicate what we want to communicate, but it's something that is worth knowing how to do. Yeah, I mean, it's a different strategy of doing it, and different people will use that strategy. And if you want to identify yourself as being that kind of guy, you have to do that feature to to be identified in that way. And so um, a lot of people, well, oh, I don't do it that way. Well, this character would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's appropriate in that context. And, and it's also useful to be able to uh, be aware of the features you're manipulating. And this is a conversation we had as we got ready today. The, the manipulation of features that we might not be ordinarily conscious of locates us within a group uh we uh i say to go it's time to go everyone and everybody knows that i'm a pompous windbag uh, everybody knows that i'm an overeducated person with pretensions uh, but if i say i'm gonna hand these papers back to everybody then I'm saying maybe if I have other features in my speech that tell them I'm from New York, then that's part of a context. But it sounds like casual speech if I use my own accent and say to everybody, to everybody. So I'm not saying that I am objecting to casualness. I'm saying that I want to be the master of it so that I can project the right character. And I, I want to I want to pick this up. What go one step further in terms of that um, weak ooh, uh, uh, yeah. that uh, in words like singular or mm. uh, binocular, um, for many speakers that vowel the middle weak vowel is a schwa, but it can be 
a, a, a very weak U or a weak U. And it, mm -hmm. certainly it started as an U and has shifted towards U and then to schwa U. Um, and that, that's a sound that often comes up fairly, well, comes up fairly rarely. Uh, and when it does, people kind of freak out and go, what, what is that sound? Um, because it's a weak U. And if you were to do a weak U in there, singular then you'd be saying something about, about character. I mean, it's interesting to look at words that have variable forms with different pronunciations, different stresses. Uh, to go back to the ooh shifting to ow, we say pronounce, but we see, say pronunciation. Certainly that syllable is st still getting some stress, but the, uh, the multiplicity of syllables takes some stress off of it so it doesn't move through that... Uh, that great vowel shift. So pronunciation uh, is relaxed. It's, it's the ooh going two different directions in the two different versions of the word. If we think of the archetypal form of it being pronunce, annuncio, uh, then the short and stressed heavy version will go pronua, pronounce, and if it's got less going on, it's a short oo, and short oos, as we'll talk about in the foot episode, tend to move towards the center of the mouth. And uh, th there's an interesting discussion in J.C. Wells' uh, uh, Accents of English about how Chomsky seems to think that this is an ongoing way of storing information, that we're sort of, we've got a great vowel shift stored in our heads. Mm. I, I don't buy the argument, but I haven't read it through Chomsky. I've read it through Wells, and who also doesn't buy the argument, so perhaps I'm biased. Mm. So we've talked our way through uh, Goose and its cousin Into. Uh, we, we, we started to talk about class, and that uh, takes us a little bit towards the articles that you had sent me that that you had found. Can you tell me a little bit about those articles? Sure. Um, I found a couple of articles, uh, sociolinguistic articles. One, I, I believe they're actually both from the journal Sociolinguistics. Um, the first one is an article, I'm just opening it, that's why I'm talking so slowly, is <laughs> called A Majority Sound Change in a Minority Community. Ooh, fronting in Chicano English. And it's slowly arriving on my desktop here. So uh, ooh, fronting, just so that we can be clear, I think we've talked about it, is, is a feature of, certainly of California English. And uh, wh while you're looking at that, let me just explain the differences between Cockney ooh, fronting and California ooh, fronting, because I do think that they're different. Fronting is just uh, where that tongue focus is. Uh, the, the cockney, ooh, ooh, starts in a central and front position and sort of gets itself together into a full ooh, ooh, ooh. And in the southern, southern part of the United States, you get some of that who, who are you. Uh, you get some of that as well. But in California, you get the whole thing moving forward. Who, who. It's also true that you get that in the northern part of England and the far north in Scotland. He, here are you. 
So there are varieties of ooh fronting, but I would call the California version uh, the whole phoneme shifted forward. Um, so the uh, that article was by Carmen Fought from Pitzer College in California. And that's spelled the F-O-U-G-H-T, yes? Yes, it is, yeah, F-O-U-G-H-T. And she basically did a sociolinguistic study of a group of um, high school students um, based in the L.A. area um, and looked at um, qualities of their speech that identified them as sounding more like... uh, Anglos, because they, were, they are Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, and uh, she wanted to get a sense of how much that ooh-fronting had been adopted in the Chicano community, and she wanted to get a sense of which socioeconomic group adopted it and which didn't. Um, and so she, she analyzed their speech and had a, a lovely graph showing how the the range of people that she spoke with went from not adopting it at all to completely adopting it. And there was a range of people in between. Can I just bring something up while we're talking about these these charts, which you'll see if you go and look up uh, articles uh, that use acoustic phonetics uh, to analyze things. Uh, there's one access that's the F2 and uh, the other that's the F1. In this case, it seems to be uh, ratios of F one to F2 that's going on. Essentially, what they're doing is they're taking a measurable part of the sound spectrum and mapping it onto a chart. However, that chart, the way they've, they've made it happen mathematically, corresponds with the position of the tongue in the mouth. Right. And the reason why they have to kind of do that little juggle is so that they can compare males and females. Uh, because of the difference in uh, oral tract size, um, the male and female ratios of uh, the, the sounds of a vowel, if you will, um, is dramatically different. Part of the reason why our voices are a whole octave apart has to do with the size of our vocal tract, uh, but also our vowels are, are created in a similarly parallel structure, um, and it's hard to compare men and women, unless you can make these kinds of changes to the, the math behind your chart. But yes. I don't know if uh, that made any sense, but... It does. And, and, and math is simply a description of physical reality. So there's a difference between the way our vocal tracts are shaped. And so we, we mathematically represent them and create this graph that represents the shape of a mouth. Right. So, uh, ultimately, she... she she f- discovered what the differences are in this group, and it's a lovely spread of different possibilities mm-hmm. from some of some of whom had completely adopted this sort of Anglo-Californian sound, and some who sounded far more Mexican-Spanish in their use of the ooh sound further back. Um, and so she then mapped onto that their socioeconomic background and found that there was no single correlation or direct correlation between their socioeconomic background and what they chose to do. Uh, So it it seemed like, well, if I was doing this experiment, I would have thrown my hands up in the air and gone, (laughs) oh no, completely useless, what a waste of my time. 
But she looked deeper into the relationships of these people into social groups, and in particular, the relationship of the the groups to um, their relationship to gang identity, whether they were associated with gangs or completely separate from gangs. And when she combined socioeconomic with gang relationship, she was able to plot. Perfectly, the, the kinds of people who are likely to maintain that ooh sound in the Mexican Spanish kind of way, and the kinds of people who were likely to take the um, Anglo ooh fronting sound, and so basically uh, the women were far more inclined to take the Anglo sound, and if they were middle class and associated with the gang. They were still inclined to stay with it. Only the people who were lower class uh, or working class and associated with uh, the gang were likely to maintain their uh, Mexican Spanish ooh. Uh, whereas in the men, uh, only the middle class men who were not associated with the gang were likely to adopt the uh, Anglo sound. So there was a lot of a lot more likelihood that the women were going to adopt the sound than the men were. You know, there's a an interesting thing that uh, seems to be true in a lot of these studies that I've looked at, and that is that women tend to be more norm favoring in terms of the the dominant accent. That in a dialect community in England, you'll tend to have more of the women aspiring towards RP, or probably estuary now. And so traditional dialects tend to be more amongst the men. I also think there's another thing at work here, and this is my own personal impression, so uh, prepare your fingers for the emails to send. Because the ooh, the fronted ooh, is associated both with whiteness and with femininity, it seems like a something that a real he-man would stay away from. I don't want to be identified as white and female. Uh, so that there's a certain machismo involved in this. And I, the reason that I bring this up, it's a harebrained idea, is that I can sort of perceive it as a Californian, that who are you seems kind of girly. Hmm. Uh, it, it's similar when we get into talking about S, I imagine, the way S variations uh, have a different meaning for women than for men. Right. So if I were to put together U's and my S's, then I would start to sound in the way that people would automatically think of as gay. Right, uh, or at least effeminate. Yes, exactly. Right. And so you don't have to necessarily associate your gender preference, your sexual preference or orientation, but certainly your sense of masculinity and femininity might be called into question. And there's some good articles about this, and it makes me think I'm, I'm talking impromptu here, that it might be really fun to do an episode which is about gaydar, which is about gender and sexuality as reflected in speech, since it's a very interesting issue. Perhaps we can get a special guest to interview on the show. Mm. 
So, yes, we have that article. The other article was interesting to me, uh, which was about South African uh, vowels. So that's called sociophonetics and social change, deracialization of the goose vowel in South African English by Ryan Mestri. Thank you for trying that. <laughs> uh, if, it's a, if, if it's an Afrikaans name, uh, yeah, no, I'm not even going to try. That's a very recent article. It's from 2010, from uh, the 14th volume of the Journal of Sociolinguistics. So, so implied in the in the title is that ooh, the, the fronting of ooh, which is a feature, uh, has been described in the literature in South African linguistics as a white feature, uh, tends to, is being adopted by more and more people. And this study took a look at who was adopting it uh, and found similarly to the other study, or to the first step of the other study, that uh, class, income, uh, and to a certain degree gender, I believe, had more to do with adoption of the formerly white sound. This is why it's uh, referred to as deracialization of this ooh sound. Whereas uh, it sounds like there's a, a certain cultural affinity, maybe not a racialization, but a, uh, a cultural identity in the Chicano, ooh fronting or not ooh fronting. What we seem to be told here is that uh, we're seeing a difference in class now from the use of ooh or ooh, and that that's across the formerly very rigidly controlled uh, racial boundaries that were set up in South Africa. I find that both of these actually really fascinating uh, because they, they well, I, I think sociolinguistics is fascinating because it presumes to walk into territories that are usually unspoken and unconscious in in culture, in polite society. Uh, we have our assumptions and we don't talk about our assumptions and we're afraid of offending people. However, as voice and speech people in the theater and in film and television, we have to be really good at this. Uh, we, Our students who come to us with you as their only possibility, need to learn the other possibilities and they need to learn how those might be deployed in creating a character. And similarly, people who only have ooh should open their minds to the possibility that they might want to play a character who says ooh. And it's also quite possible that ooh will become a more dominant sound in the years that come. And so to to sound young and youthful in California in 20 years, you may you better be able to say uh, a, a word like crude with a, a fairly far forward vowel. And to do it and not mock it at the same time, to really mm-hmm. own it as your own. I have to say that I had an experience which was sort of the inverse of this and probably more to do with roticity, which we aren't talking about yet. When I left graduate school, not through any particular instruction on my teacher Dudley Knight's part, but due to my fascination with some of these uh, fancy sounds, I really did speak my Shakespeare in a slightly fancy way. And I found 
I at least attribute my casting to this. I played old evil people. I I was, and if you, it's hard to think of it now looking at my picture on the website. But I was I was a fresh faced young kid. I was, I was the ideal Romeo uh, in terms of look, but in terms of sound, I was. I'd really done something to myself that made a dissonance between the way I sounded and the way I looked. And that's something that an actor in training really needs to look at. Uh, and they need to be able to vary. That dissonance puts you in a niche market, right? That <laughs> yes. Very few people look like that and sound like that. And so that puts you into that very specific kind of casting that, uh, that people who look like that but who choose to sound like that, they must be up to no good. Exactly um, right. I think, that, well, that's why in history films, you know, in big epic history films, the evil people were English mm -hmm. and the good people were Americans. Dis Disney's still up to it, I think, yeah. to a certain degree. Yeah. So, so if we know that and if we can do that, then I think that uh, we're in good shape. Uh, if our students are... Let's say a student wants to undergo a, a voice transformation. I think we should allow them to do that just the same way as if they want to get their teeth done or work out all the time and become big and beefy. If they're making some sort of overall change in their daily life in order to be cast in a certain way, will folks do that? Uh, I think it's probably a theater sensibility I rather like the fact that people can adapt themselves and do anything, and that's certainly what I'm trying to train towards. But I recognize that people might want to do a complete transformation. And I, I, I often find that people f find themselves in sort of... They, they're, they've been set in a corner, a niche market uh, of a very specific kind of casting. They want to broaden their horizons. So sometimes there is sort of a general thing that they're they're often heading towards to get away from the very specific kind of casting that they feel limited by. Um, and often if you suggest to them, well, here's another small niche thing you could try, no thank you, I'll take the broader, more general choice so that I have a range of casting available for that. Um, to, to then, once you've mastered that, okay, maybe I can start to play around with some more narrow choices. And, and I, I want to recognize this is a a fundamentally different way of thinking about how we're equipping our students, that there is no judgment in this. There is, uh, th this is the application of sociolinguistics to theater training. It's uh, cultural relativ uh, relativism, and I would say oral relativism, uh, as opposed to moral relativism. Uh, we, we accurately assess both what is being done and how it's being received. We practice being able to adjust it, and we think about how we're going to deploy it so that we get good at creating a well-rounded, fleshed-out impersonation of a human being, which is our project in general. Yeah. I do think that some, some of uh, what we're teaching is not just final packageable, packageable um, products, but living, breathing learners who have a bunch of skills that help them develop what's needed for, for the task at hand. And uh, sometimes students get, get lost in the thought that, 
that they have to be the finished product when they walk out the door of our training institution and that in fact you can never anticipate what's going to be asked of you uh, the only thing is that you you can anticipate is that you'll be surprised uh, and that you'll never have thought of what they're going to ask you to do um, so adaptability seems to me to be the most important skill to walk out with um, and that uh, you you should be able to to wing it and play uh, more than anything else. And our students should recognize that we are dinosaurs. We are by definition not part of the ongoing change that's happening. And so we might be able to tell them a lot about how things go and tell them what used to be in fashion when we were in school. But they're going to, in 30 years, be creating something that we will be sitting in the back of the theater going, what? I don't understand what they're saying, or whatever <laughs> accent we happen to have at that time. Uh, we, we, we will be the, the gray hairs. I'm already the gray hair. We will be the old-fashioned... Funny-duddies. Funny-duddies, yes. that's the word. Uh, so they should be prepared to overthrow us, is what I'm saying. And we should equip them well to overthrow us. Two arms. <laughs> Uh, you had a list of a couple of other interesting things to talk about. Uh, and and one of them that I found really interesting that I'd honestly never heard of before was yod roticization, ro roticization, yes, in, in African-American vernacular English. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I, I have to, you know, put my few grains of salt in here, it it comes from Wikipedia, so that's why I'm I'm a little nervous mm -hmm. about it. Um, uh, the this is coming in African American vernacular English, so beautiful. The yod in that, uh, if it's roticized, is changing to an r. So uh, it must be a fairly small group of people who do this, because frankly, I've never heard it in popular culture, and um, so beautiful would be brutal and cute would be crude, and music would be music. And for me, I've never heard that before. Have you? I've never heard it before. I can understand how it might happen, because, as we mentioned before, this bunching of the tongue for r and the bunching of the tongue for y have some features in common. Uh, brutiful. You're brutiful. Brutiful. <laughs> I'm trying to make it happen, but I don't have any sort of internal model because I've never heard anybody do it before. Yeah. Uh, I, so my skeptic hat is on in a big way. Um, the other the other thing that I had on my list was uh, the so-called U-Hue merger. So uh, in in North America, in places like Philadelphia and New York City, we get people saying things like human as human. For me, I always associate this with Ray Romano. <laughs> yes. I, I associate it with uh, Carl Sagan. Right. Y billions of human beings. Humans, yes. Um, uh, now, uh, in, apparently in, in the Cork area of Ireland, that it's also done. So it's not exclusive to that. It seems to me to be more associated with uh, uh, New Yorkers... Um, than anywhere else that I've heard, but that possibly just because of the large number of New Yorkers in popular culture and in uh, in 
film and television acting. Um, there's just so many New York-based actors. When I was um, just out of graduate school, I was acting with a company, and uh, one of the company members was a, a young New Yorker, a fairly upper-class uh, background. He did pretty much none of the features that I would uh, expect, except for that one. And and you and I both know another uh, uh, New Yorker, Amy Stoller, who probably doesn't do the other features, but I don't know if she says human. Being a voice and speech person herself, she may have a complicated relationship with that sound. Hmm. We'll ask uh, her. My perception of it is that it's perceived within that community as being one of the things that you fix. Um, and that, uh, you know, in the same way that people who were non-rhotic have have tended to become more rhotic in, in those kinds of communities because the perception is that, you know, working-class people, quote-unquote, drop their R's. You know, I, I've got a... I hate to say that we only have one listener, Eric Singer, but uh, he's certainly living and working in New York City. So if he has a sense of this, uh, I know he does listen, so perhaps he'll send us something. Or somebody else. Yes, that would be lovely. Uh, but Eric, we appreciate everything you say. Yes. Um, well, the other the other thing to talk about briefly about yaw dropping, if we can go back to that, mm -hmm. is that in Canada, yaw dropping for a long time was perceived as a kind of Canadian American shibboleth. That mm. Canadians, because of their Anglo centric ways, were likely to say things like news and student, um, and that. Uh, often people perceived uh, a strong bias against pronunciations of news and student. Um, coming back to Canada, I'm, I'm happy to say that many of my students still say student and news, um, just because I like diversity, I like a range mm -hmm. of possible sounds, that it's, it's always easier to say, yeah, say it like her. Um, but uh, the, Let me ask then, uh, certainly the word... Duke probably occurs in Canada more than it occurs in the United States, simply because things are named the Duke this and the Duke that. Uh, I flew here to New York from the John Wayne International Airport, uh, and he's the Duke. He's the Duke. And <laughs> uh, in Canada, I would say that amongst actors... Uh, uh, if you, particularly if you're doing Shakespeare, you always say Duke. You would never say Duke. I, but the fact of the matter is that most Canadians today, probably about 80% of them, would say the, the Duke of Devonshire, um, unless they were trained, like actors, to say Duke. Um, you know, they certainly would never talk about the song The Duke of Earl. Um, the... Uh, and, you know, it used to be that one would always hear on CBC uh, and now the news, but today you're likely to hear some, some people on CBC say news and some say news. It's uh, what, what I sort of feel is that it's in, in um, what's the term, free, free variation? Yes. Um, and so that uh, the, it's about 50-50 that, uh, and I, I certainly use 
uh, yod in some contexts and not in other contexts. Well, I wonder if goose is being fronted in in California and cert- and goose is being fronted in Canada too. Yes, typically more on the west coast. People often joke about how Vancouver is hmm. undergoing that change, um, and it to me it always felt like uh, that those words were were taking on. Uh, they were yawed picking up, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it sounds like Cuver rather than Vancouver. Um, but that I think that was cognitive dissonance, that I assumed that it was the thing that I do rather than listening carefully to what that speaker actually the does. The thing do. that you do being yawed retention. Rod, yawed, yeah, use <laughs> And well, in a word like music or cute, right. um, I don't say coot. Um, so it, the I, the I, unless you're an old coot, um, uh, the uh, that so that that uh, fronting that happens in Vancouver um, was uh, new to me, and many Canadians really notice it in the city named Vancouver because it seems uh, an unusual place to hear that kind of fronting. I'm wondering if uh, people who front their goose (laughs) regularly are really less inclined to hear or to make any yod distinction. That if I say Vancouver, uh, or let's say I say uh, uh, Duke, then it doesn't make much sense for me to, to... Add a yeah as well. You. My, my perception is that the people who do that make the yod element stronger, so it's more more consonanty. Yod is in and of its nature a semi-vowel, and the the range of pronunciation of the liquid u can go from a, a you know what we'd represent with the the kit vowel u tune to very strong tune, and my perception is that people with fronted U are likely to make the Y stronger to differentiate it more from that fronted U. If the Yod retention is part of their their accent, so... Well, I mean, there's, in a word like pupil, they're not going to say pupil. Right, Um, right. So, you know, the Yod yod, uh, dropping only happens in some... Right, so we'll take the word pupil... If I'm a really oofronter, pupil, 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 then we have a problem of voicing and devoicing there as well. But yeah, I think I think you're right. That seems to jibe with my internal perceptions as well, that uh, I have to make a distinction. And I certainly don't want to feel like I'm saying pupil. Yeah. Again, this is, I, I probably front my ooh, my goose a little bit, uh, being from the Midwest originally, but... It, it's much stronger here in California. Here, here in New York, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so um, the the other thing that I I, th- I found interesting is looking at traditions of transcription. That hmm. the IPA writes lowercase u for the u sound. Um, in the UK, typically this is accompanied with a length mark. So, oo is a long vowel, 
Um, and it's connected with being a free vowel. It's un unchecked or has the possibility of existing in context without a consonant after it. So we can say a word like zoo, whereas a vowel like the u uh in foot cannot exist without a consonant after it. Um, and that length di uh, diacritic is part of sort of saying this is a long vowel. It has the potential for length. But in North America, uh, there is less so of a connection of length uh, differentiating the difference between checked and free vowels, and so we typically don't use those length markers. Uh, and phonologists in North America, those people who are more interested in, in um, less about the actual sound that comes out your mouth and the sort of the thought behind it, um, they, they've been known in North America to represent ooh as lowercase u, w. Yes. And so they're looking at, in some ways, the typical glide-like movement or diphthongal quality of oo to get tighter and rounder as it goes on. Uh, similarly, they do that with the fleece vowel, too. They put a lowercase i followed by a yod. So e getting tighter, uh, oo getting tighter. This, by the way, is a feature that Arthur Lessac uh, points out uh, this tendency to do a little bit more rounding. Uh, and certainly it's been attested to earlier. In fact, Daniel Jones and uh, maybe even Henry Sweet are interested in the way in which these vowels tend to have a, a an increase in tenseness as they go along. E or ooh. I, w I would say that that's a feature of length, that whenever we draw something out, we, we're not going to maintain an absolute robotic control over it. And if we're moving from somewhere else to the sound, it's going to take us a while to get really organized around that new principle. So it does make, to me, plenty of sense to say that inherent in any of these vowels that are lengthened is a little bit of a shift. There's a convenience in this length, using the length mark, you know, if you're phonetic, if you don't have a, a phonetics font, uh, it becomes very useful, as we talked about on the Fleece and Kit episodes, to just use the one symbol, a U, and it's got a long one and a short one, and the long one is U, and the short one is U. So you're letting length stand in for, letting quantity, length, stand in for quality, mouth shape. In fact, as, as I've been reading about the development of these sounds, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the foot episode, the, the main distinction between words that had oo and o was really one of length and not one of vowel quality. Uh, that... Uh, I'm trying to think of a word spelled with a U that wouldn't have been... Uh, so let's try, let's try music. No, we can't do that because that's one of the EU sounds. Uh, there was a tendency to make some U sounds and U sounds. I'll take book, for example. Book was short, but it was still more of an oo sound. Mm. That doesn't really make sense because book was boca, so uh, insert your own good example there. I'm not quite sure, but I think you get the idea. 
that um, there w- yeah I, I think that that there was a time when ooh and uh were essentially the same sound except for length um, and whether uh, you know a uh, uh, word like good and food um, would have sounded more alike that they would have gone through a period where it was good food uh, and that good would have been short, good, good food um, would have been more of the difference between them. Yeah, and, and again, we'll come back to this with having done more research uh, when we talk about the foot vowel as well. But it does seem to me that uh, we have to really be careful in making distinctions. And, and probably I'd say voice and speech teachers are more interested in distinctions that are about quality. We certainly are interested in length because that has a lot to do with the way we engage with a text. Uh, the lengthening of sounds is part of what an actor does to live in the language, uh, feeling length and shortness and so forth. But that is a distinct quality, uh, shouldn't use the word quality, a distinct feature from vowel quality. Quantity and quantity Quantity and quality are not the same thing. Though I have to say that 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 sounds to me like a fairly North American point of view. Oh, please explain. um, That for uh, English speakers in the UK, the perception of the difference between ooh and uh is more tied to length than it is in North America. And that... um, Because those phonemes, those... Because goose and foot are more distinct in quality in North America than they are in, in RP. And, and in RP, speakers are more likely to make longer longs and shorter shorts. And so the contrast uh, of vowel length is more drastic than it is in North America. So uh, our North American speech tends to be more even and differentiated more by loudness, if you will, than... Uh, uh, British speech, which is more likely to be more syncopated with longs, that sort of rattle, rattle, bing effect, as Gillian Lane Plesher calls it, referring to sort of typing quickly and then hitting the carriage return on the typewriter for words that are being emphasized. And so length it seems to be more valued, as well as greater uh, pitch use for intonation purposes. Um, and so that, that connection of length seems more uh, important. Um, You know, uh, I went through a period where I was teaching in places where I was required to teach from speak with distinction, um, and uh, there's a whole section on using length, and I always kind of rolled my eyes a little bit Mm. about the idea of it, Um, and it was always very difficult because so many of my students had very little perception of the difference between long vowels and short vowels. Mm-hmm. And when, when I said one year to myself, oh, I'm just going to do this, you know, I'm not going to roll my eyes, I'm going to inf- insist that people really make an effort to explore the idea of long and short and get that really under their belt. What are the rules of, of English about how words are inherently long, some vowel sounds are inherently shorter or longer? And ultimately, the students found greater ease at um, relishing the language. It gave them an extra tool in their toolbox for playing. I totally agree. And in fact, the the problem that I have with the way it's laid out in Speak with Distinction is the 
the absoluteness of it, the, the idea that these rules, that you could transcribe speech just from looking at the word on the page by following the rules and always know what is long, it is always long, and what is short, and what is half short, half long. That sort of authoritative approach to me seems to be a little bit like applying a a patina over your language and, and somehow distancing you. However, there are rules that are inherent and that we personally know, and they, they match those rules that are described. The uh, Whether it's checked or free, whether that final consonant is voiced or unvoiced, whether the syllable is stressed or not, etc., those things do change the way we engage in length. And if we pay attention to length and shortness and feel their quality, uh, feel their quantity, if I can use the same language as I used before, uh, then we do benefit. We do get something out of that. I just want to pull that away from the sort of uh, <clears throat> grammar-correcting kind of thinking towards a sort of exploration of inherent qualities of possibility. Uh, that doesn't put me, or I think you, very far away from the Skinner folks. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun and useful. And I think ultimately that real, real, actually trained by Edith Skinner, Skinner teachers are not as dogmatic as the book seems to make it sound like. And I think that's so, a very good point. And that, so what's, what's written into the book is sort of the guidelines and uh, that, um, that the potential for length is ultimately what the, the guideline is. It's sort of like saying that because the speed limit is 50 kilometers an hour, I can only go 50 kilometers an hour, 30 miles an hour in the U.S. Um, that, are you uh, telling me that you exceed the speed limit? Uh, and sometimes I go slower. Um, <laughs> I always go slower when I'm talking, as my wife will tell you. So, so uh, that you know, there are some people who always go ten ten miles an hour faster than the speed limit because that's what they can get away with. Um, and certainly, um, my my actors need. Well, they're not my actors. Actors uh, need to have the ability to think that I can drive at any speed I need to. Uh, yeah, you need potential. a relationship to the rules. You don't need to be crushed by the rules. Yes, yes, well said. Yeah, I, I, I think that this is an overall really important point, and it certainly is, is true in this, in this sound, in this goose sound. It is a heck of a nice sound, and one that... Uh, is available for our relish. Uh, the the pedantry that you or I might object to in saying that there's an inherent set of rules that will yield good speaking, uh, that's something that we have to, we should be repelled by, but we also ought to be able to think our way through. Uh, I'm going to see if I can make a statement that's going to get us mail. Uh, I feel the same way about people who use the folio approach to Shakespeare, that there's a possibility of being extremely pedantic and saying, well, Shakespeare capitalized the word man, and therefore I must do something fantastic with the word man. Dude, it's a play. And <laughs> uh, I, I think that it can be very interesting to take a set of rules and see if they yield interesting results. 
but if that's the end of the story, then you're not an actor. You're sure. a, a robot. As, as somebody who has been heavily trained in folio technique, who teaches folio technique. Oh, goody. <laughs> uh, I, I've encountered that kind of, well, you know, the magic is in the book, and if you can read the magic, then you'll do the magic performance. And both of those things, I, I have to say, both of those attitudes, which are not attitudes that are necessary to the technique, those are attitudes that empower the teacher as the gatekeeper to the secret knowledge. And yes. I think we should be suspicious of that. They also sell sells books, um, <laughs> which is uh, handy for those people who are trying to make money by selling books or workshops or the like. But uh, um, the the reason why I continue to teach methods like that is uh, that uh, in some ways it's a shortcut to the idea of making choices, and that uh, um, it's a very handy way of saying to students, okay. This could be entirely arbitrary, and I, I actually do say that to my students, that it could be entirely arbitrary. What I'd like you to do is to take those rules and try them out and see how it works for you and see what happens. And uh, for young actors who have very little experience in making choices, it is like you've suddenly taught them where the brake and the gas pedal are on the car. Um, before then, they could spin the steering wheel and look in the mirrors, but they weren't getting anywhere. By giving them access to the gas and the brakes, they suddenly managed to get somewhere very quickly. And uh, that's, that's been, the, to me, the main benefit of exploring folio text. It's not the only way to explore a Shakespeare text by any means, and it's, it's in my mind, probably not the best way. But it is a way, and uh, um, I, I, I kind of enjoy exploring it with the students. It brings many different levels to their exploration very quickly. Well, at the, at the very basic level, in addition to the fact that there's a lot of information in there that I think does yield interesting results, there's a sort of Delphic Oracle quality. Delphic Oracles are notoriously ambiguous. They give you instructions, and then it's up to you to figure out how to implement those instructions. And so if you've been constrained in some way to do it the correct way, that could be a stimulus to your imagination to find a very clever actorly way to meet the requirements either of the text or of the teacher. We've wandered, interestingly, I think it was a good wander, away from Goose. But I think that might mean that we've said all we need to say about Goose for this episode. Yes, I think we've come to the end of our gooseonomia exercise, and uh, we can say goodbye for another week. Let's just give the uh, the boilerplates uh, that people please do send us uh, email. Uh, every episode, I forget. Maybe that's our shtick. What is our email address? It's glossonomia at gmail.com. See, that's really easy to remember, and other people can remember that better than I can. Uh, so please send us that. Please do, as we have had before, if you'd like to record a comment, send it in. That's, that's lovely. And uh, also, go on iTunes and uh, write a review. I, I have to confess that I think I've figured out who our one commenter is, and I think it's a former student of mine. Uh-oh. So, some stranger out there, come and say something about us. <laughs> <laughs> I guess in this world there are many strangers. No. Well, it's been uh, great spending time with you, Phil, and, and also with our listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.